Good morning, Coastal. Over the last couple of weeks, I've uh, been thinking about how important preliminary information is. Um, I've got a good friend of mine who uh, plays electric guitar every now and then named John Hyatt. And um, John Hyatt, he and his wife, not too long ago, just a couple of years ago, I guess, they purchased a home. And uh, they asked me if I would help move them into their new house. He, John had his all this junk stored in a storage unit, and I'm sure many of you have seen storage units. I don't understand why, and maybe you can answer this, why do they make them big enough for a Toyota Yaris to fit in them? If at any point you needed extra space to move a vehicle, it would be in a storage unit, right? So I got this storage unit, didn't ask John a whole lot of questions before I committed, because I assume, like every other human being, he would have rented a U-Haul. Uh, he didn't do this. Instead, I show up, and John is driving a Ford F-250 Super Cab, Harley-Davidson edition, driving the biggest trailer I have ever seen in my life. That is no exaggeration. His father-in-law suggested that he take this thing. John don't know how to drive that thing. He has no idea how to drive it. So we get in, and in God's sovereignty, he decided to allow it to rain that day as well. And I'm not talking about just a little bit of rain, but I'm talking about a lot of rain, including the thunder. And it came after we already had the trailer packed, okay? And so we're already committed by this point. There's no, okay, let's do this another day. We have to do it now, okay? And so there's three of us there that day. One of us is an employee at NASA. None of us can back that trailer up. Nobody can. (laughs) Pulled it in fine, can't back it up. So two of us in the pouring down rain, we're out trying to guide John. Back out this way. Come out this way. And the other guy's on the other side, and he's saying the same thing. And John, in just this peak of desperation, I don't know who he was talking to. He, I guess he was trying to make sure God heard him. He rolled the window down, and he screamed, I can't do this! At that point, we decided to call the owner of the truck, which was his father-in-law. He and Anne-Marie were recently married, and... Uh, the very woman that he said, Father-in-law, I will protect this woman and take care of her, but I can't back a trailer out. <laughs> we had to call that guy. So he came down there, and what took us a couple of hours to back a trailer out, and I'm not exaggerating, you can ask him yourself, it took this guy about three seconds at 30 miles an hour to back the trailer out. <laughs> it was ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. So I got out of the truck with my head hung low, and I'm drenched, soaking wet. I've got it all over this guy's super cab. And uh, I go back to my Toyota Yaris, and I sit and I think for a minute. I'm like, you know what? I'm a really girly guy, surrounded (laughs) by other girls. My my friends, my guy friends are very girly men. (laughs) So I decided to text John that. Ton, John, we are girly men. John didn't have his phone on him. He left it in the truck with his (laughs) father-in-law. His father-in-law looks at the text, and he tells us, yeah, you are girly men. (laughs) Preliminary information was really important to that situation. If I would have asked John, hey, what's the weather going to look like? I figured you'd check the weather since we're going to be outside all day. If he said it was raining, I'd say, no, thank you. I don't think so. I'm not going to be there. John said, hey, I'm, I'm not going to have a U-Haul trailer. I'm going to drive a truck that I'm unprepared to drive. I'm not going to be there. I'm not showing up. Preliminary 
information is absolutely essential before diving in further to a situation. And so what I want to talk to you about this morning is, is preliminary information. Pastor Sean, in the next 13 weeks, starting next week, he's going to um, take us through a, a sermon series called Dear Rome, Love Paul. And uh, it's going to be a 13-week study on the book of Romans. And before we start that, I think it's, it's important for us to, to learn a few things first. The book of Romans, it's, it teaches us that the gospel has been God's plan since the beginning of time. Martin Luther, he was a, a reformer. He stated in 1552, he said, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and is worth not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. And my hope is for, for, for all of us is that, that through this series that Pastor Sean's about to start, that we'll continue to, to develop a high view of God and we'll continue to, to develop a, a gratefulness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, in order to grasp Romans, we need to understand context. The danger about me spending a lot of time on context is, is that I, I may bore you, and that's not my intention by any means, is to, is to bore you. I want you, to understand, I want you to understand the importance of having context and information before you, you dive into to studying God's Word. It's an important step for us to do any time where we're striving to find out what God's Word means. I think a lot of times, uh, because context intimidates us, we kind of categorize it and say, well, that's just for the, the seminary students, or that's just for the people who are, who are going to interpret the Bible professionally or, or what have you, and that, that's not accurate context and, and, and doing the legwork of studying God's Word is, is absolutely important when we're diving into finding out the meaning and the truths of Scripture. We need to understand historical content. We need to understand the author's purpose for writing and the audience. We need to understand those things before we can understand God's Word biblically. What if I told you that a failure to grasp context hinders your walk with God and therefore hinders your worship with God? A failure to grasp context hinders your walk with God, and it, it'll hinder your worship with God. It's absolutely true. A.W. Tozer, he's a pastor who passed away uh, not too long ago. He said uh, he was known for this prayer. And the prayer said, Heavenly Father, let me know you as you are, that I may adore you as I should. Let me know you as, as you are, that I may adore you as I should. Our failure to understand context when reading God's word has resulted in us believing wrong things about God. Our motives are pure, but, but we lack understanding, and sincerity doesn't equal truth. We must sincerely believe right things about God, and in order to, that, we, in order to do that, we must understand God's word the way God intends us to understand his word. His word. I've told you this before, but a lot of times when we read God's Word, we read it from our American, our Western eyes, right? We don't read it with, with the culture in context when we're reading a passage of Scripture. We read it with our culture in context. And when we do that, we may miss the, the meaning altogether that God's trying to communicate through His spoken Word. What if Coastal Community Church was a church that understood God's Word biblically? Isn't that a thought, Right? What if we were a church that understood God's word biblically and we taught God's word biblically to a lost and dying world? 
God could do amazing things through that, couldn't he? The Bible from beginning to end was written by different men in different periods of time to a certain group of people, all pointing toward the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing about the book of Romans is the book of Romans harmonizes that for us. And over the next 13 weeks, you're going to see how the book of Romans harmonizes the one theme, Jesus Christ saves dead men. W.T. Connor, he was a theologian and professor in the early 1900s, he kind of says humorously, I thought this was funny, he says, the Bible, it doesn't mean what it says, it means what it means. It doesn't mean what it says, it means what it means. In other words, we can't pull scripture away from its intended meaning. We can't just pull a single Bible verse out of context and apply that as truth. We have to understand its actual meaning. And so my, my goal today is for you to grasp what the book of Romans means so that when you begin your study next week with Pastor Sean, you'll be equipped to grasp the message that Paul's trying to communicate. I'm going to do this by covering two points this morning, okay? The first point is that I'm going to give you, uh, we're going to spend time on context and background information on the book of Romans, okay? We're going to spend some time there. We're going to do this by tackling three different things. The first thing is we're going to look at the author of Romans, the guy who penned the book of Romans. The second thing we're going to look at is the audience it was addressed to and the, the cultural climate of the time. When What was... The culture like during the time the book of Romans was written. What did the Roman church look like, okay? And the third thing is we're going to look at the purpose of Romans. Why did uh, the Apostle Paul decide to write this letter in the first place? Like, why, why did this letter even come into existence? And then the second part of the sermon this morning, we're going to look at, we're going to look at the thesis of Romans. Okay, what is the... the the heartbeat behind Romans. What is the message of this letter Paul wrote to the Roman church? Lord willing, this is going to help you to understand the book of Romans and consequently the gospel. Um, and it will enable you to, to communicate the gospel using the book of Romans and give you the tools that you need in order to interpret any passage of scripture. Okay, for further help and tools, I just want to plug a couple of things real quick as um, we're offering over the next several weeks this commentary. It's by a guy named Douglas Moo, and it's one of the best commentaries I've read on the book of Romans, and it's very accessible. It's not intimidating at all. We're offering it at the Connect Center. You can pick it up. It's $20, which I believe, um, and if somebody finds out, you can correct me on this. I think that's about as cheap as you're going to find it, um, and it's offered at the Connect Center. Uh, pick it up. When Pastor Sean goes over a, a certain passage or teaches on a certain passage, you'll be able to look that passage up in this commentary and read what this expert on Romans has to say about it, okay? Um, some uh, other tools is, and uh, Pastor Jeff has already mentioned it, but uh, Sean Cooper is starting a uh, a class for the next five weeks um, starting on April 16th and going from April 16th to May 14th. And it's, it's, they're trying to equip you with the tools on how to study the Bible. The class is actually called How to Study the Bible. And it's um, going to be here from 7 to 8.30. And uh, for any of you who are uh, uh, understand the importance of, of getting context and how to approach God's Word, if, if God's stirring in you to, to really start taking that seriously, I would challenge you to get plugged into that group and uh, you can find more uh, out about that group at the Connect Center as well. And then lastly, on the back of your sermon notes this morning, there's a list of a few resources. Those are some of my favorite resources that, uh, that I've read when studying the book of Romans that uh, uh, would benefit you greatly if you want to do further study. So with all of that said, let me pray, and we will dive uh, right in. God, you are uh, you're good. 
and we're not. Lord, you're holy, and we're not. God, nothing's more important than us grasping your word the way that you intend it to be grasped. And so, God, I pray that over the next few moments you would give us understanding, God. Lord, that you would give us the diligence, Lord, and the attention span to, to, to fight to understand the message you're trying to communicate to us. And, Lord, I pray for someone who doesn't know you that's sitting in this room, Lord, I pray that they would understand that your son, Jesus Christ, is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him, Lord. And God, I pray for the believer sitting in this room, God, that we would grow more and more passionate about sharing your truth, Father. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's take a look at some of the background of Romans. I want to first look at the, the author of Romans, okay? The author is known as the Apostle Paul. He was formerly known as Saul, and uh, God saved him on the road to Damascus when he was, he was going to persecute Christians, okay? The resurrected Savior appeared to him, struck him with a blindness, and saved him from the penalty of a sin. And if you want to find out more about Paul's journey uh, pre-Christ and more post-Christ, you can look at... Uh, Acts chapter 9, okay? Uh, understanding, reading Acts chapter 9, finding out a little bit more about the Apostle Paul will help you to understand the Apostle Paul's ministry uh, a whole lot more. After God saved Paul, he called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles, okay? Gentiles meaning non-Jews, okay? Paul was called to a ministry of proclaiming the gospel to non-Jews, and his, his ministry was bound to be a, a controversial one, okay? Because up until now, the Jews have always thought that the gospel was exclusively for them, right? The gospel is just for the Jews, nobody else, we're God's chosen people, and, and that's it. And so the ministry that God calls Paul to completely blows the Jewish mindset, okay? It completely blows their mind because, because they start to see, wait a minute, why is he preaching to them? Why is he teaching these non-Jews about the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's not just for the Jew, it's also for the Gentile. So what makes, the question arises, what makes Paul authoritative, okay? What, why, does, why does he have an, a right to, to write this letter to the Roman church or to instruct the Roman church? Like, who is he? Why should we listen to him? Look at Paul's credentials with me. In Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. His, he gives us his credentials in, in the very first verse. He says this, Paul, a servant, it's better translated in the original language, a slave. So it would read, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of what? Of God. So Paul gives us his credentials to, to he's saying, listen guys, you need to, Church, you need to listen up here. You need, to, you need to pay attention to what I'm about to say. The first thing, and if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to kind of write them the way that you're, you're going to see on the screen. The first thing Paul calls himself is a slave of Jesus Christ. He calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. And again, we can't think of it the way that we, we hear the word slave and we think of we have all this garbage that kind of falls into our head about what slavery was in America. And, and this is not the same type of slavery, Okay, this is not the slavery that we see in, in, in the early Roman church. Um, Paul was confessing that, that he came in service on behalf of his master, Jesus Christ. See, uh, him saying, listen, I, I'm a slave to Jesus Christ, gave him this, this foundation to say, listen, 
I'm speaking on behalf of someone that, that's very high up, so you should listen to what I'm going to have to say. A slave of somebody in high position had more status, authority, and freedom than a free commoner did during the time that this letter was written. The emperor slaves were, were some of the highest-ranking people in the entire empire, and the Roman Christians would know that. So, so Paul found his identity completely in service to his master, Jesus Christ. And he's, he's telling the, the Roman church here, you guys should listen to what I'm about to say because I come on behalf of my master, Jesus Christ. Jesus rescued Paul from his former master, the slavery of sin, right? And he rescued him into this new slavery, this beautiful slavery, and it's slavery in service to the person the God-man, Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see that he was an apostle. He says, I'm an apostle. Apostles were the 12, and Matthias, who replaced Judas, right, and the apostle Paul. Okay, there were 14 total, and that's it. There's no more apostles. The, the apostles, uh, by claiming to be an apostle, especially getting, uh, he's trying to grab a hold of a Jew, Jewish audience as well. He, by claiming apostleship, he was saying, listen, I... I have the authority that the Old Testament prophets that you care so much about, I have the same authority as those guys had. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And by the way, an apostle, in order, the, in order to become an apostle, two things had to happen. First, Jesus Christ himself had to tell you, I want you to be an apostle. Okay, biblically speaking, this is how an apostle you became an apostle. Jesus Christ had to tell you, and secondly, you had to be witness to the resurrection. Okay, you probably hear of people who call themselves apostles today. That's not right. That's not biblical. They misunderstand what God's word teaches. There are no more apostles living unless there's a 2,000-year-old apostle running around here. I don't, I don't, and I don't think that that's true. But the apostles were appointed by Christ, and they were eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and so they came with authority. And then lastly, Paul's credentials was that he was set apart. He was set apart before birth for the gospel of God. And not just it isn't just referring to Paul's preaching and, and his, his calling to, to present the gospel to, to the Gentiles primarily. It's Paul's entire life can be summarized in the truth that God set him apart before the foundation of the world to save him from the penalty of a sin and then call him into ministry. And so Paul is coming to teach and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's coming to the Roman church. He's writing to the Roman church as an act of obedience. He's set apart. If you've been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ in this room, you have been set apart. And you're called, just as Paul's called, to preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. So let's look at, secondly the audience it was addressed to. And let's look at the, the cultural climate of the book of Romans. Look with me in verse 7 of Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> we get a picture of who Paul's writing to. It says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, this, this letter, it was addressed to believers that were scattered all throughout Rome. Okay, I don't want you to picture... Um, don't picture the Roman church the way that you picture coastal community church, okay? It didn't happen like that. It wasn't a, uh, we weren't in this beautiful building and gathered all in the same place, or even like we, we worshiped last weekend with Easter and all of us were in the same place worshiping together, okay? 
the, the early church, remember Christianity is this new movement and it's just starting to spread and it's, and, um, it's, it's, it's at its roots, right? It's, they're scattered all throughout Rome. So this letter uh, had to circulate uh, from place to place. Okay? The churches more than likely were, were meeting in people's houses. Okay? So when he's, he's writing to the Roman church, you know that it's circulating to different places uh, different churches that are meeting in people's houses. Romans 16, um, verse 5 alludes to it when Paul states, greet also the church in their house. House churches, they were especially common in the Roman church because of uh, mainly two reasons. The first is, is strife and dissension among the members. Okay, You had Jews and you had Gentiles, Okay, and the Jews thought you needed to worship. And they were Messianic Jews, Okay, so they believed that Christ was God, that Christ was the Messiah. He came to save them from the penalty of their sin. And then they had Christian Gentiles, non-Jews, and they were trying to worship in the same space, and they had um, uh, different views on how one should worship God. And so that naturally created tension and strife within the church, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later. But secondly is this new Christian movement saying that Jesus Christ is God, fully God, fully man, was met, as you can imagine, with much persecution, and is still met even today outside of the United States with much, much persecution, right? And I mean severe persecution. And so you had these Jews who've been converted by the gospel of Jesus Christ and they're excited and they're, they're trying to be obedient and they're calling and they're going to their synagogues amongst their former friends who don't believe that Christ is the Messiah, who were wrapped up in their Judaism and are still waiting for a Messiah that's never going to come because he's already come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They're confronting them with the gospel and the Jews are angry. And so you have Messianic Jews and you have you have non-Messianic Jews, and they're at odds with each other, okay? And so it's causing persecution, it's causing trouble, it's causing all these different things. And the emperor at the time named Claudius, in around 49, uh, the year 49, he just got tired of it. He was tired of all the controversy and all the dissension and all the violence and all the stuff that was going on. So he said, you know what? I'm kicking you all out. Every Jew, get out of Rome. You're all gone. So naturally, because Claudius, he kicked all these Jews out of, out of uh, Rome, the Gentiles started taking the place of leadership within the church, okay? And so this, was, this would cause the church to, to naturally and mainly consist of Gentiles. But by the time Paul wrote Romans, which was around the year 56, okay, Jews would have started to kind of trickle back in by this time, okay? It had been a few years since they'd been expelled, and, and so when the letter was written, he was writing to both Jews and Gentiles, but it was mainly consisted of Gentiles. And because of their differences in worship, there's a lot of dissension, but Paul's writing them, he's writing to all of them in spite of their differences. And so before we move to the, the actual heartbeat behind the book of Romans, we need to answer one more question. And that's, why did Paul write this letter to the Roman church? What, what is the purpose of the book of Romans? What motivated Paul to, to do this? See, Paul didn't, he didn't plant the Roman church. Okay, we know from Romans 15 and Romans chapter 1 that he was prevented from being able to see the Roman church, okay? So Paul didn't plant it, Peter didn't plant it. More than likely, it was planted by Messianic Jews who got a hold of the gospel, were passionate about it, started spreading the gospel, and it kind of happened organically, okay? And it's spreading like a wildfire. And so this was probably the first time that they've had any contact with, with this person of such authority that came on behalf of Jesus Christ himself, okay? And so, uh, so why did Paul write the Roman church? Look, at, look with me in Romans chapter 15, verse 24. 
I believe the answer is found in this verse. Paul states, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed my company, uh, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. And Paul was being obedient to the great commission of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in order to continue in this obedience, he needed financial support. Paul needed financial support. Paul realized that his ministry and the gospel needed to be spread everywhere. And in order to do that, he needed some money. Rome was on his way to Spain, okay, which is from the text tells us that Rome intended, uh, Paul intended to go to Spain. And Rome was going to be on his way. And in order to successfully get to Spain, Paul needed brothers and sisters in the Lord who would share in his, his burning desire that, that he had to spread the gospel for the glory of God and for the sake of God's elect. Paul's home church, Antioch, was further away from Spain. And so Rome was, was a lot closer. He needed somebody closer. So he's asking for the Roman church. So essentially, um, he's going to this church and he wants to, to show his PowerPoint slides. And, and tell them, just imagine with me, they didn't have PowerPoint for those of you during that time. He was showing his PowerPoint slides to, to um, say, listen, this is who I am. This is what God's done in my life. This is what he's called me to do. And I need you to share in the burden of this ministry with me. And the church agreeing to help is a part of the church being the church. That's the role of being the church. It's not a lot... Not, not a lot different today. You're giving, Coastal. When you're generous through giving, you're being obedient just as the early church was being obedient. It's through generosity that a church is able to be most effective for God's glory. Giving to the church supports all the different ministries that, that go on with the church, from kids to youth to small groups to the greeting and the ushering and the coffee and the weekend services. Everything that goes on is only possible by people who catch the burning desire that we need to spread the gospel and want to play a part in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and you're giving help. The, some of the results of that we just celebrated two weeks ago when we, we baptized 14 people who publicly made a confession of faith to follow after Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing? Something to be excited about that God allows us to play a part in that. We had just a few weeks ago, we were advertising on the back of your bulletin all the different ministries that, that uh, missions that Coastal supports by your generosity. And it's only by you catching the vision that these missions are important to give because they're advancing the kingdom of God that we're even able to give a dime to those ministries. You're playing a part in the Great Commission. This is the reason why Paul is writing to the Romans. He's giving them an opportunity to share in the ministry that God's doing. And you have that same opportunity today. So with that said, with that context and that understanding, and I, I pray that you'll take that context with you over the next 13 weeks as you study God's Word and that you'll apply the approach that we've taken to help understand different books of the Bible. But with all that behind us, let's move now to the thesis of the book of Romans, okay? The, the main message um, behind the book of Romans. It's found in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul states this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by what? By faith. The righteous shall live by faith. In order to understand this letter, you must 
understand this passage of Scripture. So I would encourage you to, to highlight it, to underline it, to remind yourselves of it daily. This is the core message of the book of Romans that Sean will spend the next 13 weeks unpacking out of different places throughout the book of Romans. No matter the differences between these two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, they can have unity in the gospel. They can have unity in the gospel. So let's break these verses down, and then I'll be done, okay? First, Paul goes straight to the defense of it, and he says this. And if you're taking notes, you can write this and take notes underneath it. It's, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the first thing I want to look at. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Remember, Paul's, he's writing a letter to a church that he's never been to, he's never ministered to. So these people, they've heard about the apostle Paul, and they've probably, you know, how rumors go, right? They hear certain things that may or may not be true about the Apostle Paul, and he knows this, right? So you have the Gentiles over here that think that Paul hasn't fully let go of his Judaism, right? Because he's not just throwing away all the Jewish traditions, and they know that he was a Jew, and he's also a Roman citizen, and so there's all these preconceived notions that come with that knowledge, and they're probably making their own conclusions based off of those uh, um, preconceived notions. And then you have the, the Jews, who think Paul is just a traitor. How dare he talk to these non-Jewish people? How dare his ministry, his primary ministry, be a ministry to the, to the Gentiles? And so Paul goes straight to the heart of it. And he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. There's a word here that you, I'd love for you to write down if you're taking notes, and that's the word ashamed. The word ashamed. In the original language, this word is it's associated with something that's not popular, okay? something that, that isn't popular, and it's in reference to belief, to belief in Christ and in his word. It's, it's, and the reason why he says, for I am not ashamed, is because this gospel message is an offensive message. And I'm not talking about offensive in the sense of we're upset with some political candidate, so we tweet about it or we write it on our Facebook status, or, or we're upset at our wives or at our husbands, and so we decide to give it to them by, by posting something on the social web that's, that offends them, or we post something that's just offensive in general. I'm not talking about that kind of offensive. I'm talking about offensive in the sense of their life is at stake for proclaiming it, and those who reject it, their life is at stake in the next life. That's the offensiveness that I'm talking about when I say the gospel is offensive. John MacArthur, he's a pastor of Grace Community Church in California, he says this, Although every true believer knows it's a serious sin to be ashamed of his Savior and Lord, he also knows the difficulty of avoiding that sin. When we have the opportunity to speak for Christ, we often do not. We know the gospel is unattractive intimidating, and repulsive to the natural, unsaved person and to the ungodly spiritual system that now dominates the world. The gospel exposes man's sin, wickedness, depravity, and lostness, and it declares pride to be despicable and works righteousness. The idea that you can earn your own salvation declares that to be worthless in God's sight. Think about proclaiming that in the culture today. Right? Think about uploading that into a Facebook status. See, we're a culture who thinks we're better than we really are. We are. We naturally think that way, and we freely embrace everything, don't we? Nothing, nothing is truly true. Everything's up for grabs. Nothing's absolute. Everything's relative in this culture. The gospel is counter-culture. 
You can't get around it. The gospel is counterculture. It goes against the way we are and the way that we naturally in and of ourselves want to be because of our sin nature. Therefore, it's offensive. It was during Paul's time and it is during our time. However, we cannot be ashamed of the gospel coastal. We cannot be ashamed of the gospel. If you get to know me, you'll get to know that there's two things that I'm extremely passionate about in life. The first thing is God's absolute sovereignty over salvation. And the second thing is that the plan by which God set up, the means that God set up to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ is the local church. That's it. There's no plan B. There's no alternative. Who are we to make the gospel of Jesus Christ more palatable? And I'm not saying that we make it offensive by our tone or we make it offensive by our actions because we need to present the truth in love. So don't mistake what I'm saying. But the gospel message in and of itself when presented biblically is offensive and we can't alter it to make it more acceptable in our culture. Our culture must conform to God's word. Our culture must conform to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the local church is the means that God has set up to teach others, to teach a lost and dying world about the salvation that's only found through Jesus Christ. So what is, what is the gospel message? What is this gospel message that's so offensive? If you're here today and you're a Christ follower, this is the gospel message that saved you. If you're not a believer in this room, I want you to pay careful attention just over the next few moments because these are the truths that can rescue you from yourself and save you from the penalty of your sin. Number one, if you're taking notes, is in order to understand the gospel, it's essential to understand God the Father's character. Okay, We must understand God's character biblically. The Ten Commandments reveal to us God's character. See, a lot of times because we live under this new covenant, because Jesus Christ came and he saved us from our sins, so we take this whole law aspect of everything and we throw it to the side. It's incorrect to do that, okay? Because the law points us toward two important things that we need to understand in order to understand the gospel. The first and the most important thing is that it teaches us that God is holy. God is holy. The second thing that it makes us aware of is the truth that man is sinful. When we compare ourselves to God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, and we compare ourselves to God's character, we understand that we fall short every single time. And so we can't just throw this whole law thing away because it makes us aware of both of those things. The, I love the picture in Isaiah chapter 6. Okay, you got Isaiah and... God has graciously brought him into the throne room here and he sees the glory of God and the train of God's robe fills the temple and then he looks over and he sees these super weird, unfalling angelic creatures called seraphim. Okay, it gets a little weird there. But they're seraphim and they're, they're worshiping God and they're saying something I love. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his what? His glory. See, the seraphim, they had six wings. With two, they covered their eyes. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And they were unfallen. They're not like us. And they still couldn't even gaze upon the majesty and the holiness of their creator. They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. John Calvin, he's a French theologian and pastor during the Reformation. He stated this about this passage. 
He said the Bible says God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, holy, holy. God is holy. He is separate. And he can only dwell with those who are holy. However, we're sinful and fallen. And in order to understand the gospel, you need to understand this. God created a good world. He created and he saw that it was good. And he created Adam and he created Eve and he saw that it was good. And I believe that the ultimate free will was found in the Garden of Eden when when God placed the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil. And he told Eve, do not eat of the fruit. Enjoy life, but this is my one commandment. Don't eat of the fruit. And Eve, as the story goes, and you can check it out more in Genesis chapter 3, she was deceived by the serpent. She ate of the fruit. She gave some of the fruit to the husband. And because the husband ate of it, sin entered into the picture. And since then, we're all born sinners. And you can read more about that in Romans 5. We're all born sinners because of Adam's sin. Psalm 51 states, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Because of the sin, we we can't dwell with God and we can't please God. The Bible even goes as far as to state in Romans 3 and in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're completely dead men. We're dead in our trespasses. Matter of fact, we're so dead that we're headed in the wrong direction and we're happy about it. And if God doesn't divinely intervene, we're going to hell and we're happy about, we're happy about it. We hate God and we're happy about it. The only thing that we want to do with God are the benefits that we can receive from God, but not God himself. We're going in completely the opposite direction unless God intervenes. This is a difficult thing to say in our culture because we're a culture who we see the good in man, we see the redeemable side, we examine ourselves in light of of worldly standards. However, when compared to the character of God, we're creatures who deserve an eternity separated in hell. That's what we deserve. This is a difficult thing to say, but we have to say, as the Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Another thing that's offensive naturally about the gospel is that the gospel is exclusive. The gospel is exclusive. You see, there's a bunch of different religions that say that they offer the way to a good life or whatever the case may be, but the Bible teaches there's only one way, and that's through His Son, Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Jesus himself states in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father. No man can be reconciled to God the Father except through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. That's it. This is an affirmation that Jesus is making himself that Christ alone is the way of salvation, that Christ alone is the one way to be reconciled to God the Father. There is no other way. Christ, the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man, lived this perfect life. And then our sins, our transgressions, our filthiness, the people that we are at the core of us was imputed. That means it was literally cast upon this God-man, Jesus Christ. He, He bore our sins. And God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, gave him the death penalty so that you and I could be reconciled to him. Is that not love? 
It's the most beautiful picture of love ever to be recorded, ever to be given. It's the ultimate love, is that God would kill his son so that we could spend an eternity with him. And thank God it didn't end there, right? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4, the apostle says later, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, and thank God we celebrated it just this past week, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. We serve a God that defeated death, he defeated hell, and he defeated grave, and he has victory, and we have victory because he's a resurrected Savior. Present the person of Jesus Christ in any other way is to present him incorrectly. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Let's look at the second part of this, this passage. He says, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If you're taking note, there's four words that I want you to circle or underline or whatnot first one is power. Second one is salvation. Third is everyone. And the fourth is believes. I'm going to go through these words very quickly. So power. What is this power that's in this passage of Scripture? The God of the universe, the omnipotent God, which means all-powerful God. He's the one that fuels this power. He and he alone. And in and of itself, it is sufficient to save sinners and to grant them everlasting life. So what is this power? It's the gospel whereby God builds his kingdom. That's what the power is. Look at the word salvation. The salvation it, here it's the, it's the, describes the state of believers being safe from the righteous wrath to a proper relationship with God. See, God uses his son, like I was saying just a moment ago, Jesus Christ, to, to cast his wrath, his righteous wrath, onto a son so that it doesn't have to be cast out on us. We're being saved from the righteous wrath of God because of the price that he paid. Thirdly is the word everyone. Everyone. See, Paul reminds the church, remember our context here, okay? This is where understanding context comes into play. The Jews think the gospel is just for them. Paul's saying, no, it's not just for you. It's for all people types. All people, what, what Paul was saying is just as, or what Paul was not saying is just as important as what Paul's saying. He's not saying this, that every single person on the face of the planet who's ever lived is going to be saved. That's not what he's saying. That's universalism, okay? It's not biblical. It's not God's will, and it's incorrect to teach it that way. What Paul was saying is this. The gospel is for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It's for all types of people, Okay? The gospel for everyone who believes. And in order for the gospel to be accessible to you, you must repent and believe. Look at this final word in this section is the word believes. And the Greek word for believes, it's not, a, uh, it's not a self-created belief. Okay, It's not the type of belief that you produce yourself. It's not the same as... as me saying, I believe that if I get on this plane and I fly somewhere, that I'm going to arrive there. 
okay, that's not the type of belief or a belief that I'm going to leave work and I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to drive home and I believe that I'm going to make it home. It's a different type of belief. This is a belief that has to be produced by God because we're dead in our transgressions and we don't have the ability nor the desire to believe. Therefore, God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, produces this belief within us. He produces this belief. It's a gift from God. God must produce it. It's the ability to grasp and to trust the gospel. And this ability can only happen when the Holy Spirit's working in your life. Paul also, like I said, this constant tension in ministry between the Jews and Gentiles. And he's, he's striving to remind his audience that it's our job to be obedient to what God has called us to teach. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to reproduce the results. See, our job as the local church, it isn't to discriminate who should possess the gospel and who shouldn't possess the gospel. Our job is to obediently take the true gospel, the offensive true gospel, with all the love and the compassion in our hearts, serving one another to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Let's take it a step further. It's so easy in church life. The temptation is there to always want to produce results, right? You preach this message or, or you, you, you've been discipling this person for a long time or, or you're, you've been in the small group, teaching a small group for a long time and you know that, that Joe or Billy or Susie or whatever haven't ever made a, a profession of faith and you so badly want them to be saved by the gospel that you, you try to stir up and conjure as many emotions as you possibly can to try to push them toward accepting the gospel. And what we're doing when we do that, what we do is we end up trying to manipulate things unintentionally, right, with the, with the best intentions at mind, but we're confusing the role of the Holy Spirit and our role. The role of the Holy Spirit is to soften people's heart and to bring them to repentance and faith. Our job is to obediently preach the gospel because God's plan, again, is to use his local church. Everybody in this room who calls himself a believer is called to proclaim the gospel message, period. And if you're not a believer in this room, I challenge you to repent and believe this gospel. Let's look at the last part, and I promise I'm finished. If we're in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. One pastor states that faith activates the divine power that, that brings salvation. And in that sovereign act, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God here is key because it's imputed just as our sins and our transgressions are imputed to the God-man, Jesus Christ. Those who repent and believe the righteousness of God is imputed to us. Isn't that beautiful? The Apostle Paul reminds us, he, he grasped this in Philippians chapter 3 when he said, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul, even a few chapters later in the book that we're studying, the book of Romans states, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I'm so thankful for this last part. It says, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Amen, right? 
this imputation of righteousness, as Pastor Sean likes to say, he paints a great picture for us. He says that the righteousness of God is literally imputed to our spiritual bank account. Comes to us when we repent and believe. And it's not just a one-time thing, but those who are found in Jesus Christ continue to repent and believe, and they're obedient to God's words. And don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you have to be obedient in order to gain salvation, but an obedience will be produced in your life after salvation because you have a heart change and you're passionate about God and His truth and obeying. Those whom God saves continue to live in faith. That's what Paul means when he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, and he says that the righteous shall live by faith. This is a doctrine known as the perseverance of the saints. Those whom God saves are eternally kept and will continue to follow God's word in obedience. You can't fall away from that. This is the heartbeat behind the book of Romans. Paul's desire is to preach and teach the gospel of God, culminating in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he desires to show that it's been God's plan for his people since the beginning, since the creation of man. Both the Old and New Testaments point to the same thing, and that's the gospel message. My prayer for, for this church is that over the next 13 weeks, this letter will sink deep into all of our hearts, and that we'll, we'll grow passionate about the gospel contained in this entire book, the Bible. The book of Romans is a personal letter from Paul about the gospel, God's beautifully woven plan from creation to commission. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your gospel, Lord. Thank you for your unchanging truth and your unchanging character, God. Lord, and thank you that you give us the ability and you give us the mind to understand your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would raise up people in this room who are passionate about understanding your word the way you intend it to be understood. God, and, and that desire will turn into to people who are passionate about the gospel and passionate about sharing the gospel with other people, God. Lord, I pray for the person who doesn't know you in this room. God, that you would bring them to a point of desperation. They would see that the only way to be reconciled to you is through your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. As we have um, a prayer team that's standing by, if, if God is, is working in your life, or if you want to, to discuss further about the things that God's doing, um, you can talk to them. Are they in this room? If you're uh, on the prayer team, can you raise your hand? Okay, they're standing in the back. And, uh, and if you need to chat or want to talk about uh, the gospel or anything, please pull them aside, talk to them. They would love to speak with you. And it doesn't just have to be today. There's people that are always available to talk. Another way um, to, uh, to be followed up with uh, about what God's doing in your life is there's a tear-off inside your bulletin. If you can... Uh, just write us a letter and your contact information. Uh, we would love to, uh, to get back with you. But I'm going to transition us now into, this is our offertory time. And uh, this is uh, just as the early church was being obedient to the Great Commission. This is this local church's way of, of catching the vision of the gospel and, uh, and giving of their resources so that they can further.